Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, July 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a series of bridge closings across the state could leave Mississippi drivers spending more money for transportation. In our story course segment, a mother tells her daughter about the first six months of married life living in the same house as her husband's large family. And experts say Mississippians gaining an understanding of technology is just as dire as them getting access to broadband. How digital literacy could become a big part of your future. People don't understand the benefits of the technology and they don't maximize the technology to really, really push it. We need to continue to work to increase awareness of such a critical issue. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Some Mississippi counties are closing bridges after failing federal inspections highlight safety concerns. More than 4,000 bridges need repair across the state. Some remain open but have been given new lower weight limits. Officials say people ignore the signs that show the weight limit for bridges. They say trucks carrying logs in Adams County or grain in Washington County are a problem because they're so heavy. Doug Hecox is spokesman for the Federal Highway Administration. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware, what causes a bridge closure? What causes a bridge's closure? Yes. Fear. Worry that it's going to fall into the river. We have a very rigorous bridge inspection program where bridges nationwide are evaluated closely for a variety of structural reasons to make sure that they're continually able to do their job. And as they age, and sometimes it may be weather issues or it could even be issues of the water in the river that's corroding or scouring soil uh, out from around the pilings that keep the bridge up. There's a variety of things that have to be constantly evaluated to ensure that the bridges are safe for the public to use. And so in Mississippi's case, there are a number that uh, worried us and uh, the state agreed. And so the state is actively working to make them safer for the public. How are residents impacted by bridge closings? I'm confident that there's an inconvenience. Uh, Certainly the Mississippi DOT can give you more specific information about the timetables of the repairs. But A detour around a bridge, while inconvenient, is certainly safer than driving across a bridge that isn't reliable. And so we want to make sure that the public is safe, and we want to prevent people from losing their lives by going across a bridge that isn't safe for them. So it's an inconvenience, we know, but it's uh, better than the alternative. And structurally speaking, what does the inspection look into when looking at the safety of a bridge? From the quality of the bridge deck itself, to cracking that may occur throughout the body of the bridge, the deck and all the substructure of the bridge. The girders and all of the metal beams have to be inspected for corrosion, which happens with uh, a watery environment such as a river or a high humidity environment. In Texas, we have bridges that have to be evaluated for bird dew because it's acidic and actually eats into the metal. So there's a variety of things bridge inspectors are constantly looking at both on top of the bridge and under the surface of the water to make sure the bridges can stand. 
What dangers could a failing bridge present? It could fall, as we saw 10 years ago next month in Minneapolis with a bridge on the I-35 interstate. During rush hour, the entire bridge collapsed into the Mississippi River, and it killed 13 people. It's surprising that it wasn't more, but that's the kind of thing we cannot afford to have happen ever again. How did Mississippi come onto the radar to be inspected? The National Bridge Inspection Program evaluates all bridges nationwide, and that's more than 600,000 of all sizes, big ones and small ones. And so the minimum inspection requirement is that each bridge will be evaluated at least once every two years, but many of them are evaluated more frequently than that. So this is an example where the bridges that had issues were identified early and repairs are being made. And thanks to the repairs the state is making right now, the public should be safe. Doug Keacox is with the Federal Highway Administration. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Happy to do it. Please travel safely. The changes could lead to extended drive time as some Mississippians travel to find alternate driving routes. That could also mean increased gas usage for some drivers. Business and resident drivers may have to pay more per gallon at the pump to accommodate the closings if the fuel tax is increased. Media reports have highlighted closings in Washington, Adams, and Octibaha County. Democratic Senator Willie Simmons says increasing the fuel tax could help raise the needed money. I'm very concerned about not just the closing of the bridges. I'm more concerned about those bridges that have been posted. And when I say posted, what I mean is that bridges that were built for a certain weight have had structure damage. And as a result of that, they have been posted down to a lesser weight. And my fear of those bridges is that they're still being utilized and that if an overweight vehicle crosses one of those bridges because it already has structure damage, it can have more structure damage. And another vehicle, whether it be a family car or an emergency vehicle or a school bus, cross that very same bridge. And as a result of that, you could see a collapse of that bridge because of the structural damage that was just recently done to it. So what is being done now to ensure the safety of the bridges that are remaining open? We are monitoring those bridges through our enforcement offices with the Department of Transportation. We are trying to do what we can to repair and stabilize them. But we're talking about approximately 4,000 bridges across the state and having the need for over $3 billion to maintain our highways and take care of those kinds of bridges. So it's a serious problem. Just to give you an example, we had 12 bridges on Highway 6 between Clarksville, Mississippi, and Batesville. That's about a 35-mile stretch. And within those 35 miles, there were 12 bridges that was posted and had to be replaced. And two years ago, we passed the bond deal. We, the legislative body, passed the bond deal for $200 million. And approximately 90 million of those $200 million are being expended to replace just those 12 bridges on that one 35-mile stretch. Now, when you combine that with 4,000 bridges statewide, you can see the cost and the problem that we have in being able to provide safety and make sure that those bridges and those citizens who are riding across those bridges and businesses are not put in a situation where they are jeopardizing their safety as well as costing them more to maintain their business. But we have not done anything uh, other than that $200 million to take care of the problem because we keep kicking the can down the road and saying that the citizens do not want us to raise money to do it. So we refuse to do anything about it. So you mean at this moment there has been an allotted $200 million to go towards the repairs? That was done three years ago. And $90 million of that has 
been expended and committed to 12 bridges on one small highway. So half of the $200 million are being committed to just those particular 12 bridges in that little stretch. The other 39,000 bridges, we got to look for some other means of doing it. And part of the problem is that the citizens have not told the legislators that they are willing to pay more at the tank or somewhere to take care of it. And as a result of that, the legislators are telling the leadership, like the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker, that they are not going to support raising any funds to do it. So it's a problem at every level. So for trucks who need the bridges or maybe part of shipping companies or, as you said, school buses, how would that affect these areas? Businesses are not going places where they can't get to. As a result of that, there may be a business, a small business, looking at locating someplace. But when they look at the cost, it would take them to go around the posted bridges to get their product in and out of the business. They won't locate them. So that could be a problem. And then there could be existing businesses where the bridge was okay when they built or started their business. And now that bridge has been posted or closed, and they are having to travel 50 uh, more miles to get around that bridge and get to it, that's going to cost them more money because they got to pay for more fuel. And if they are having their products shipped in by a trucking company, that trucking company is going to charge them more because now they have a direct line to them. they got to go around other places to get to them. Regarding the current repairs needed, how much is this looking to cost? We need approximately $350 million a year for the next 10 years to get us to right at $4 billion that we need to take care of our current roads and bridges in the manner which they need to be taken care of. Senator Willie Simmons, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for calling. Senator Simmons says the fuel tax increase would cost Mississippians about $60 annually, and the state needs more than $350,000 annually to fully repair the bridges. Coming up, a TOAS family conversation in our StoryCorps segment. Then find out why digital literacy is key to moving Mississippi forward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Billy Tullis was just 17 years old when she met the man who would later become her husband. At the time, he was in the military. Lavelle Tullis went on to be the chief of police in Jackson. Billy Tullis talks with her daughter, Judy, on the StoryCorps mobile tour in Mississippi. I was 17. I was in senior in high school, just about to graduate. His dad had a quartet, a gospel quartet, and they traveled and had been to our house several times. But at that time, Lavelle was in service. So on Mother's Day of 1947, we went to the little country church where they were having a Mother's Day homecoming there. We were kind of late, and when we got there, when we walked in, well, Byron told us his dad was standing up toward the front. Well, I was a little shy. He was motioning me to, I, I didn't want to go, but he kept on. So I walked on up there in this front of this church full of people. And just as I got to him, he said, Billy, I want you to meet my son. And I looked up and the minister said, bow your head for prayer. And when I looked up, I was looking in his eyes and he was a goner right then. <laughs> 
I didn't quit pursuing him until I got him. <laughs> That's not quite true, but he did do a little pursuing. <laughs> <laughs> and Papa did a lot of pushing. Oh, yes. yes <laughs> Papa yes, made that uh, yes, happen. Yes, yes, he did. And so y'all married. Yes. And temporarily we lived with his mother and daddy for about six months. Talk about his family a little bit. All right. The family that you came into as a 17-year-old Arkansas <laughs> well, schoolgirl. Well, he he was 21. Vernon was 19. I was 18. Jerome was 17. Skeet was 16. Peggy was 9. And James was 4. And we all lived in a two-bedroom. It was a big house, but it was, you know, two beds in every room, but... So you fit like right in. Yeah, yes. And they do consider you a sister as much as... They do, and since my mom died, they tell me I am the matriarch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like a grandmother to all the children. I, I do. And I know you're very close to word to Peggy, the only oh, yeah. girl. Yeah, and I, I loved my mother-in-law, and she loved me. Tell one of the stories about Daddy and the boys in the tree or... One of their prank stories. Oh, one of the things they played was to take a small pine tree and one would climb it and the others would pull it down. And then they'd turn it loose and let it fling you <laughs> off. They were just wild. I, I still am sorry that we didn't do something like this. And we kept saying we were going to, to get all of them together. But was, they played pranks on yes, each other. Yes, because it was always so interesting to have them tell it. One would start to tell it, and there would be several different variations of different opinions about that. I, I, one thing I want to tell you, and I may have told you this before, I always think it's so funny when differences of opinion about what happened. Sybil, when she was four years old, had phlebitis in both her legs, and her legs, I can remember, were as big as her body. They were so swollen. And, you know, it's a miracle that she lived. I was seven, and I remember people were coming and to see her and bringing her little gifts, and, you know, that on the bed where she was, she'd have little gifts. You know, I was jealous. What can I say? <laughs> and then years later, when Mother and Daddy were sick, she and I had gone to Arkansas. But you stood out in the rain. Is that <laughs> no, a part of the story? I'm not going to tell that you part You stood of out in the rain puddle <laughs> to try to get sick. Is that? Do I remember that part? You remember it better than I do. <laughs> but let's go back to the other story. We were in a hotel in El Dorado with Mother, mother and Daddy were in the hospital. And we were just talking about, you know, our childhood. And I was talking about that. And she said, well, isn't that funny? She said, I don't remember anybody bringing presents. All I remember is that my feet were so swollen I couldn't wear shoes. And you got new Easter shoes. Here's the two sides of the same story. Of the same story. Yeah. Uh, hey, it's pretty much still the same. <laughs> <laughs> to hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Mm -hmm. 
I'm Liz Gill, host of In Legal Terms with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. On our next show, our guest will be attorney Angela Davis-Morris of the Davis-Morris Law Firm. We'll take your questions on disability and Social Security law. That's on In Legal Terms today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi has the lowest broadband access in the nation, with about 35% of the state's residents lacking the infrastructure, particularly in rural areas. Experts say the population could be left behind. As we reported yesterday, more Mississippians will gain access to high-speed Internet if a bill sponsored by Senator Roger Wicker is passed in Congress. Although providing access to Mississippi's rural communities could help health service delivery and emergency operations, residents will have to begin using it before the state can see gains. That understanding is what experts like Ruth Farmer call digital literacy. In 2016 and 17, Farmer was a senior policy advisor for tech inclusion at the White House. She is now an advocate for equity and inclusion in technology. She tells more about the need. We all live in a very digital world now, and so much like you have literacy of understanding how to read and write, um, there's a new need for digital literacy, which is understanding that the devices that we use are in fact programmed, um, that they are programmed for a motive, that um, you need to know how to use those devices safely and smartly. Um, I think everybody's aware of the cybersecurity threats that exist now, not just in our country, but all over the world, and that we're vulnerable. So having a population of Americans and students that understand computation, understand what these devices are and can do, that's pretty critical. Why is it important to Mississippi? How is it important to Mississippi? Okay, well, I want to clarify. There's digital literacy and there's computational thinking, and these two things go hand in hand. The economy of the United States is an information economy. And being able to participate in that economy is critical for the state. It's for the citizens of the state. So the unique opportunity that is presented through IT, computing, technology, software development, all of those jobs that result out of computer science and, you know, digital education, the opportunity that is presented there is that those jobs are not geographically bound. If Mississippi creates the talent, the companies will bring the jobs here. And if Mississippi creates the talent, investors will invest in the people to start companies here. So the opportunity is pretty huge, considering that we have 500,000 jobs on the horizon in computing in the next two years, and less than 50,000 people got degrees this year in the entire United States. So our talent pipeline is really, really, really weak for this space. And companies are very motivated to get more talent. The defense and intelligence um, and defense contracting sector has to hire Americans. They can only hire people who can get security clearance, which means they have to be American citizens. So the opportunity for bringing industry to this state is pretty high if you invest in the intellectual capital that is your human population. To be qualified, capable of doing these jobs, are they all college degree required or is there other kind of training for these jobs? There is an entire spectrum of jobs and technology 
some that require a certificate or a program that you do over the course of a few months. You can do that at a community college, at some of the trade schools. There are um, like Basecamp that is a coding um, training program for students right out of high school. There are pathways that are actually through the military. There's pathways that are undergraduate and graduate level. So there's a whole spectrum, just like anything else, right? Like if you look at medicine, there are jobs that require 12 years of, you know, post-high school training, and there are jobs that require certificates and on-the-job training. So the same is true of technology. Because technology is always evolving, does that mean those who are qualified to work in technology have to be always evolving as well? Technology does move pretty fast. And that's why I really like to stress this idea of computational thinking, because if everyone has a foundational understanding of computation and what it is, the actual tasks that you do, such as I'm using a programming language, those are going to change over time. Or the actual technologies you use, like the smartphones that we're walking around with, what are those, 10 years old? So now there's an entire realm of app development and mobile data development and mobile web. Those jobs didn't exist a few years ago. Now we're seeing jobs pop up as virtual reality developers. Those jobs didn't exist three years ago. So obviously, as the technology develops, you're going to need to learn. But cars today run on millions of lines of code. So even mechanics need to understand computation. And it literally is in everything. It's in medicine, all the advances in medicine. But does it also mean that if it breaks down, it's much more difficult to fix, to find out where the problem might be? I think in uh, many cases that's true. But also we need smart people building systems that are resilient and systems that have easier pathways to fix them. Mississippi is such a rural state, as you know pockets of poverty, particularly in the Delta, that don't have access to technology, to computers, those kinds of things. How far behind the eight ball are they? So access to broadband, I really believe, is a new human right. Almost all jobs you apply to and communicate with your kids' school through technology. You apply for jobs online. And it's like back in the 60s when we made sure that everyone had phones. Well, now we need to make sure everyone has access to the Internet because that's where information is. So I think it's pretty critical that Mississippi as a state make access to broadband and technology a priority for all your citizens. The businesses benefit from an educated populace. So it's always been expensive. It was expensive to get phones to rural America. It's going to be expensive to get broadband to rural America. But it really needs to be a priority if we want to reach everyone and we want people to be able to be productive in their own communities. Ruth Farmer is the former senior policy advisor for tech inclusion at the White House. And I thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. State legislators hope to close the digital divide and boost local economies. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson says it's the way forward. This country and the world is moving completely toward some aspect of digital. You can now order your groceries online. You do your banking online. You order your train tickets online. So, you know, that's kind of the direction that the world is moving in. Now, the question for people in Mississippi is, are we current in that movement? And I'd have to say, in some places we are, but the further you get from urban areas, that divide becomes real. 
there are parts of my district in the Mississippi Delta where we can't even get Internet service yet. If it can get it, it's so expensive, it's prohibitive from a cost standpoint. So it's important. It's the way forward. And we have to do all we can to get as many people connected as possible. We still have schools that are not connected uh, in our state. And so our children really can't be the best that they can be when the facilities are not current. So Congress has uh, looked at it. We made several attempts to incentivize states and localities to do it. And to some uh, of those localities' credits, uh, we've done that. But we still have a long way to go. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. And join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.